Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you download this from. Thank you for doing that. We are sponsored by Life's First Naturals, the makers of bovine colostrum and True Biotics. And True Biotics does have things that are specially made for women to decrease urinary tract infections. Randomized controlled trials show that, as well as to help with bone health. Go to their website, lifesfirstnaturals.com, and you can see the randomized double-blind studies on that, as well as the Longevity Playbook, our own website, the talk that curates choices for longevity. This is 1151B. The Bs are always the latest guests that we can gather up, and this one is a superb guest as usual, Leslie Lair. She explores the duality of today's woman to navigate a new path between sexy and sacred. I can tell you this is a great book, A Boob's Life, How America's Obsession Shaped Me and You. All you have to do is Google A Boob's Life, but you can find out about Leslie more at Leslie. L-E-S-L-I-E, Lair, L-E-H-R.com. That's her website. She is a prize-winning writer, including What a Mother Knows, A Targeted Recommendation, and Wife's Goes On, and 66 Laps, winner of the Pirate's Alley Faulkner Prize. Her nonfiction books include Welcome to Club Mom, and I think I'm probably glad she didn't meet my wife, who also has a total career and is a tremendous lady and raised our kids. Little help from me. Of course, the A segments are the latest medical news of the week and what it means to you. By now, you probably know I am a medical nerd, but this book is sensational, Leslie. And I've got to tell you, as someone who what have I I've probably interviewed now um, between Oprah Radio and this probably someplace uh, over 1,500 book authors. This one actually kept me from figuring out where to go to ask you questions. So I try and read at least half of the book before the I get to interview the person. This one is fascinating, and I'm going to read the rest of the book that I didn't get to read on vacation this year if someone in my family doesn't steal it from me on the way there. So one of the chapters is on your life as a first California girl. And one of them is how not to be a role model. So go someplace there. I don't actually know where to go other than uh, how did the uh, auditioning for Playboy shape your life? (laughs) I got to say, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Royce. And it's really an honor. I, I love listening to you. I was just listening to a cancer thing this morning and thought we'd just be talking about breast cancer, which was kind of what inspired my ride of how much my breasts have changed throughout my life and how much the culture affects us, how we think about ourselves, and certainly the experience you are talking about right now. Uh, I grew up in Ohio. I went to California. I wanted to be, you know, cheerleader, homecoming queen, and California is the most beautiful women. And I was in a very competitive sorority and didn't last for long. I accidentally dated somebody that somebody else was dating who was more important than me. Well, they were the president of the sorority or something like that, as I remember. I didn't know. 
I came out and my roommate and I had tried out for cheerleading to try and do that. I had been in Catherine Ryan Gymnastics team and, and later she was a, you know, a song girl in Santa Monica. But the proof at that time of how to be beautiful was to have a beautiful figure and breasts. And I grew up with my father having leather-bound Playboys in the living room. He went to Princeton where they had it in the library. So I grew up with a culture of nubile, young-looking breasts were the holy grail. And I knew that at that time in the 80s, every celebrity was in Playboy. It was how they proved themselves. The Association of Plastic Surgeons had had the FDA approve small breasts as being a disease that affected your lifestyle, So, which opened the window for lots of money to go into breast implant surgery. I kind of equated with breast reconstruction with cancer and top surgery. I mean, breasts are the first identifying gender issue, you know, when you walk into a room. But my roommate and I, after getting politely asked to leave the sorority, we wanted to prove that we were beautiful. And so we decided to try out for Playboy. And she was a six foot tall blonde and I'm a five foot four brunette not well endowed, but we had seen these girls of the, you know, the Pac-10, which it was then in little cutoff football shirts and shorts. And we thought we can just go and then say, no, we're not going to show our boobs, but we still get asked to be a playboy. And we went and that was not what it was about at all. And, and now I shudder to think that I actually, I don't even know if my daughters are listening. I don't think they've read the book, but if they have, that's their first knowledge that I've tried out for Playboy because obviously since then I became a mother and I got the great boobs and then they shrunk after I breastfed. And then I ended up later getting breast implants after I was divorced. And it was a kind of an identity thing. And my mom was afraid I'd be lonely. And then I got breast cancer later, unrelated. And that's how I wrote this book was I looked in the mirror, got out of the shower one night and thought I should be after all my breasts have been through and I've been through, why aren't they perfect? You know, I wanted to fix them. And my, my husband accused me of being obsessed. And I sat down on the bed and we listened to a TV late show and the great comedian said a boob joke. And I realized, oh, we are all obsessed. And for me, a feminist, to feel that way and to have gone to college, you know, on a scholarship across the country and tried out for Playboy was just, it just blows my mind how much I breasts controlled my life, you know, and, and how I related myself and what you were talking about at the beginning, the sexy and sacred thing. It really is. We're either sexy, our breasts are, or they're sacred because we're mothers and we're using them. And I think women are a lot more complex. And so it's time for women to respect our bodies a lot more. Wow. One of the things you do here, what I would call a couple of funny things You've got a thing on the history of cheerleading. I didn't realize it started at Princeton with all-male cheerleaders. And I don't know if you know that the Cleveland Browns, until two years ago, did never had cheerleaders. Yeah. For just that reason, I suppose. They're very smart with all the lawsuits happening now with, you know. Well, now now the Cleveland Browns do have cheerleaders. So uh, new ownership. And so for the first time in whatever it is, I think it's probably more than 50 years, more than 100 years, almost 100 years, I think, uh, of the Cleveland Browns history. We have cheerleaders. But in any case... I grew up in Columbus, so I'm a Buckeye. And watching the Ohio State cheerleaders every year at the Rose Bowl, that's that's what convinced me to 
want to be a cheerleader and move to California. And then you actually, so. you, the, the book goes, I don't know how to, how to say it is really your history, correct? But it also is, it woves in like women's legal rights. It has a whole bunch of important points and things to think about at the same time as being funny and entertaining. So it is exactly what I try and do or we try and do with all of our writing, which is to make it enjoyable, fun, but yet important in changing life. The other thing, I there are <laughs> a history according to breasts. I should read the chapter titles. Just They were fun. A lot of puns. But you're right. It's, it's a spoonful of sugar make, helps the medicine go down and and I really found that the way I feel about my body makes me judge other people's bodies. And the way everybody judges women's bodies, particularly their breasts, really does make a difference in our laws and our family laws and our health care and breast cancer. And, and I grew up at that, this time when there was a critical mass of breasts became not for babies, but for men to be sexy. And it definitely affected everything. How has the change in fertility? And even the change maybe in goals shape this story. Because one of the things, children are, are expensive and getting more expensive. We think that's a reason why there is a, a lower number of children being born, if you will, or especially a decrease in fertility allowed by the revolution of birth control that happened in the 60s. But how has that changed women's approach to both how they view their body and also how they view work? I think you're so on topic. I was just reading a big editorial yesterday saying that women are no longer having babies as much as they used to. has nothing to do with fertility, has nothing to do with birth control. It has everything to do with the lack of support for families. And women are choosing when we're getting into the workforce, we have so much lack of help at home. And, you know, we're 33rd on the, on the list of countries with parental leave and support for women. We don't even get supported for breastfeeding at most workplaces, you know, and a lot of women can't afford to breastfeed because they have to work to feed the other children. So I think that the women who have a big career, you know, they need a wife to have children it's even during COVID, you saw a lot of the women who are career women had to suddenly do the homeschooling. And so a lot of people left the workforce and it's, of course, it's expensive and somebody's got to make all the money and it's unfair to men that they have to make all the money. Women are starting to work and make money, but it's very hard to split your time and take care of the children and make all that money. And so I really feel it has to do with more legal support in the country for family support and you know, in a perfect world, women would get social security for raising children. Then we'd be equally equal financially for investments and later on in life. But meanwhile, we have to stop working completely or not work to give our children a full life and have such a wonderful background as your children did, or be able to afford full-time housekeepers and all that help and manage all that thing. So I think it, it has a, a lot to do with money, but it has to do with the money that supports the family rather than just raising the children. And I think as women see that they can do more things, you still can't do everything all at once. And I think that's what's stopping 
my older daughter is is in her early 30s, established relationship, excellent job. She works at Adobe. And she's like, I don't know. I would have to give up this and this and this. And how could I do this? And there's they have a lot of good benefits there, but it's still a tricky culture. Yeah. My wife and our son was on the cover of uh, Time magazine, I think, in 1980 because of this dilemma that was started way back then. She is a physician, still working, and was working in 1980 and or 1978 all along. Well, that was one of the early women to be able to be doctors, and that's why women's health really started getting attention then. Right. And the amazing thing, when I look back on it, is the role that the grandparents paid in, played in allowing us to do that, her parents played in allowing we now move away. I mean, you moved out of Ohio to California, where you still are, I assume. And I remember in the 50s and 60s, early 50s and 60s, a lot of women didn't work. And the society was such that it was expected that they would raise the children. And even now, some men raise children, but it is very hard to live in a one payroll family and raise the kids because kids are so expensive. Yeah, we didn't used to need computers and and cell phones and all those things, you know? Right, you just threw us out and play in the backyard. Exactly. Or the street um, where it was safe to play. Now, go into the chapter about, as you said, you're a feminist. You're in a family with, I, I think you have two daughters. Is it is that correct? Yes. And, my, and I have one sister and she has two daughters also. So it's a family of women. When you get together, which I think you'd still do based on what I read in the book with some frequency, what do the kids ask about? And how is your daughter, I guess, who works at Adobe, handling the issues of delayed motherhood versus career success? I think she wants to be a really good aunt. I think that's just not her goal. She has a younger sister, my other daughter, who maybe will be the one with the kids. And my nieces are a bit younger. They're both just launching their careers. And I think that most women really don't think about it. They don't plan ahead about how it's going to happen. They just figure they'll work it out because there's so many variables of what to do. And I think that's what happens to a lot of women. They catch up and then realize, oh, like that cartoon, gosh, I forgot to have kids or whatever, you know, but I know if you find the right guy and your hormones are like, oh, I want to have babies. And then it's a struggle. How do you compromise your career? Do you have grandparents and support nearby? You know, and then if you can handle all of it, I definitely recommend, I mean, and women are supposed to have babies early and then establish their careers. Women who wait longer can be more established and have money to have their careers. I think it's a real individual thing until we have, you know, legal support for nursing and parental leave. And my sister, her husband actually is a, is a stay at home dad. It worked for them. And, but for all of us, it was like, shouldn't he be working? You know, you still have these old fashioned moors. She's a broadcaster. She works all the time. And she did get her breast reconstructed because of being a broadcaster. She got a big job. Yeah. She said they were cricket and she had to compete with the younger women. Yeah, it's like we, I actually was writing about it years ago and she was convinced. And then I thought, oh, I'll wait. And then I later did. But I find it really interesting. 
now that I've had breast cancer as well, the women who go through so much, I mean, they'll go through years of surgeries to get their breasts back or to get them done or to take them off if they're, they have a threat. I think breasts are such a huge part of identity and they are representative of motherhood. So it's, we want to be maternal and, and attracted to do all that. And yet I know to work, you have to hide them. So all our life, we want breasts, then we show them to get a man and then we hide them to get a job and then we nurse with them. And then, you know, our whole lives, it's amazing how our breasts affect them. And as a medical doctor though, I would love to know your opinion on why if breasts are literally an organ, right? They turn blood into a different liquid, a, a liquid immunity, nutrition, customized booster that we call milk for our children. And yet there is not a medical specialty for breasts. It's the only organ. There's not someone who's in charge of breasts for our whole life. Well, we we think of obstetricians and gynecologists as having that role. But then there's breast cancer is a whole different doctor. Correct. You know, and later on in your life, it's they don't, if once you're past childbearing age, they don't really look at your breasts much, you know, except for to make sure you don't have breast cancer. Yeah. And although plastic surgeons do do uh, a lot of work in older women as well. Right. But they also do noses and faces and, you know, very few just do breasts. Yes. No, that's correct. There probably are other organs that don't have their own specialty, but you're right. I don't know of any other than uh, lymph glands and the lymphatic system. And right, but is that an or that's not an organ that has a process involved, is it? Lymph glands. Yeah, it really is. It's a system. But in any case, you bring up a good point. But the key point I want to bring up is a boob's life is an incredibly fun book. I guess it's being made into a HBO comedy series, and it deserves to be. It is so much fun, Leslie. So if I was going to say uh, one book I'd take on vacation, and I do plan on doing it, is A Boob's Life. Thank you. We did put it out specifically this week so, because I think it's such a great Mother's Day present for anyone who has boobs or loves them. I think most of us have some relationship to them. So thank you very much for A Boob's Life. The website is Leslie Lair, L-E-S-L-I-E-L-E-H-R, no punctuation in between, dot com. It is both a provocative as well as an absolutely fun read. Thank you for being on and please think about getting this one or giving it as a gift. It is so good. You will be honored to do so. Thank you, Dr. Please, big, big shout out to your wife. Sounds like she did a fantastic job. She is the best thing I ever did in life was marry her. That's correct. In any case, we should thank our sponsors, longevityplaybook.com, where you can find out all those choices that make a difference in how long and well you live and get ready for the reboot that has an 80% chance of happening so that Leslie will be able when she's 90 to be 40 again. <laughs> okay. And the other one, of course, is lifesfirstnaturals.com, the makers of both TrueBiotics and Bovine Colostrum. And I guess we could have talked about colostrum as they're part of a boob's life. Thanks very much again. 
but especially thank our listeners, you, for downloading us. 50,000 a week of you can't be wrong, and most of you are right, because this is... Love your boobs. This is a great (laughs) session. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.